Welcome to News of the World, a news extravaganza, something for everybody and also for those who really love to dive into world politics and the trouble we all face on this little blue planet. And it's a show with Mark Fonseca Rendero sitting there on the other side of the internet. Hello, Mark. Hello. In Amsterdam. Yes. You're Good morning. Back in Amsterdam. I am home, I am home, yes. complete with all the technology, internet, and lack of echo that home brings. Oh, that's excellent. Yes, yes. Uh, I've already been at that place, and I'm still here in Berlin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yes, welcome to the program, everyone. News. I was thinking, you know, we also do news for people, we should try to do news for people who don't like to think about the world, but how do you reach people that don't want to think about the world when you talk about the world? It's I don't, a problem. Yeah, yeah. It's a problem. It's a general problem. And it's also maybe, I'm not so sure it's a problem for us because people might only turn to this podcast if they are somehow interested at all. But, you know, you always want to reach out more, don't you? Yeah, yeah. You want to talk to the people that normally wouldn't be listening as well as the people that are always listening. Mm. Oh, um, the internet. Yeah, it's a problem. And I, I I wonder if our listeners are, you know, totally satisfied with what they get or if there's any room for improvement. Yes, we, we look forward to your hate mail. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Let's get to the world of hate. Yes, there's uh, a lot of hate left to yeah, report. You're, you're going to think that you're hearing a repeat from the last three weeks, but we're starting with chemical weapons because the report came out. Uh, I think early yesterday, the UN released a report about chemical weapons and they confirmed that there were, listen carefully now, there were chemical weapons attacks in Syria. Uh, they called it clear and convincing evidence, quote, quote, that sarin armed rockets were used in this specific site, uh, Hauta. They call it the Hauta incident. Uh, now, what they don't say, and I, I want to highlight this, is who did it. And I suppose that's how uh, weapons observers are supposed to function. Unless, well, I guess unless they really find evidence, I guess then they're allowed to say who. But they did not have any evidence or present it anyway of who did it. And I say this because I just got the update through the, the push notifications from the AP app that says... Syria has now handed Russia <laughs> you have to hand everything to Russia first they've handed Russia evidence that the rebels did it um, and of course the US France, UK and a lot of other people uh, believe based on the report and then other information about this conflict that the government did it. Many people say the types of rockets that were used, uh, the rebels haven't had access to, although they, they do have a lot of other weapons. So it's, I mean, look, no one knows for sure in this case uh, who exactly did it, but um, now you see another game being played. First it was we didn't do it or there were yeah, no chemical weapons. But, it, and but it's not that this report doesn't present evidence. Uh, it presents a lot of evidence. It doesn't present any conclusions on this uh, evidence. But they have found professional modern rockets with uh, Kyrillic letters on them. They have reconstructed the, the path those rockets must have uh, flown and they could more or less uh, you know, track it down to government-controlled areas. Um, I don't know. I mean, not that I have any evidence or I have any <laughs> clue. Don't? No, uh, neither do I have a clue. Neither 
do I have any uh, idea how this all works, but so far I haven't seen anything that makes me believe that's not the Syrian government that was behind these attacks. And why should they, um, you know, why should why should they agree into a plan to turn over all their chemical weapons <laughs> if they're not, uh, you know, behind yes. this attack? It just, just doesn't make sense and nobody really believes them. But this is a, a political play and it's probably <laughs> the, the for a long time in... When was the last time we've seen the old Cold War forces, you know, head-to-head -head on an issue, uh, at least talking about it, you know? Yeah. Not really in the mood of fighting each other, uh, as this uh, was the case in the Cuba crisis. Mm -hmm. But where it was totally obvious that uh, if it's not for them to, you know, uh, to make any major decisions here, uh, nothing will happen at all. I uh, I want to guess like pub quiz guess. Uh, think Kosovo. I think Kosovo that that Russia did not want the U.S. forces to go in, but then they joined later. Uh, but anyway, that's the closest I can get. No, this is a pretty. I mean, I think more so than at that time. This is a pretty uh, Cold War style um, diplomatic battle. Yeah, and in um, anyway, I mean, I'm not going I don't want to stretch this comparison too too much, but if you look at the Cuba crisis, this mm -hmm. was all about military presence mm -hmm. on on uh, a country. I mean, of course, it was um, the the rockets they were building were sort of targeted to the US and it's a totally different story now, but again, it's a, a military presence the the Russians have because Syria Mm -hmm. And that's not really talked about much in the news. I mean, no. they have a military base there. It's their only access to the Mediterranean Sea, <laughs> which also means it's more or less their only uh, access, military direct uh, military access to seas that can reach the, the Suez Canal, that can reach uh, Arab countries. It's more or less their, their gate to the south of the planet. The only Ooh. other option is, you know, far on the other side, up there where Japan and uh, China and, and, and Russia meet. Um, but so on a geopolitical scale, maybe Russia just doesn't, I mean, could even be that they just, just don't care about the Syrians at all. I'm not saying they do, but, you know, yeah. it's They're still geopolitics. We're not... not uh, in a, in a time where it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, the government of Russia is not famous for being humanitarians. They are famous for being about their interests. And they're not the only ones. I mean, the U.S. is also... All of them. All of them. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there are countries out there, but usually don't... They, they're not very loud or powerful, but they, they, you know, they care more about human rights. Uh, the document, the actual chemical weapons report, I have it here. It'll be included in this link uh, via the CBC Uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Company, and they have a nice little document browser. You can read. It's about 41 pages. I have not read it yet. Uh, there's some talk about how they even looked into the weather and and how the, the, the timing of using these chemical weapons may have been based on the fact that the weather was just right so that uh, they would do maximum damage. And I, I didn't know that the weather changed so much at, at that time of year uh, in Syria, but apparently... And, and again, that makes me think a little bit about the government because if anyone's sitting around, uh, you know, looking at weather predictions and planning when to launch, I, I really don't think it's the rebels. But again, this isn't even about 
who I think, as much as it's like, look what this debate has become. And of course, as always, in the background, every day, more and more dead, more and more bombings. You know, it's 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 still human lives are lost while we we play these games. And I and I do call them games because this is a bit of a game. Uh, even including the UN, you know, the UN gets used in this game. Yes. Uh, yeah. So that's uh, the uh, latest. On yeah, yeah. I mean, one more thing. What's the big question now is if the, is there any chance or do you see any chance uh, that it comes to a Security Council resolution that includes Russia of any kind? That includes Russia on the side of taking action? Yeah, like, I mean, taking uh, action, not uh, military action, but um, I mean, this whole deal, we talked yeah. about this uh, last year, you know, Kerry was asked by journalists, you know, is there <laughs> any way to prevent this attack? And I said like, yeah, in theory, they could hand over the weapons, but this is not going to happen, <laughs> you know, uh, And then uh, everything looked like five minutes later, there were, Russia was calling Syria like, oh, that's a nice idea, isn't it? And it's like, yeah, cool, let's do that. Yeah, fine, <laughs> yeah, okay, done. You know, and everybody was like, huh? And uh, <laughs> thinking about it and listening to other reports, I think, you know, no way this, you know, this... Um, This outcome was something that was born out of some kind of fantasy moment and then everybody just chimed in and said like, oh, cool, yeah, we think, didn't think of that. <laughs> no, this must have been on the table all the time. And it's a very elegant solution for everybody because Obama sort of, you know, had the, his problem with the red line. Yes. But nobody really wanted to do it, including himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just that the, he couldn't step back because otherwise... You know, he would have lost uh, his face completely. <laughs> But then the the uh, U.S. public came like, ah, what? Um, yeah, no, you know, it's like we had our share. Why? You know, who cares about Syria? We don't even know where it is. Yeah. You know, have you seen any any interviews where people, uh, where reporters on the street ask U.S. citizens where Syria is on the world map? Uh, maybe they've done we all know what the outcome would have been um actually there's a website where you can you know zoom in on the world and click on where you think damascus is ah, <laughs> that's very okay. interesting and in the end you get a heat map of what most people thought where it is uh, oh i think it's rather good i have to look it up maybe uh, we, we will put it in the show notes if i uh, okay. if i find it but that's okay. you know that, that's the problem nobody really wanted to do it And Russia is in trouble also because this whole chemical weapon thing, I mean, uh, yeah, they, 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 they try officially, they say like, yeah, no, there's no, no fucking evidence, you know. And then after evidence is presented, it's like, yeah, that might be evidence, but it's not, I don't know, it's not uh, <laughs> that kind of evidence. It doesn't have the right color tone or whatever. Yeah. You know, they're sort of ignoring it. But I think at this point in time, everybody knows what's going on. But Everybody needs a way out. Obama needed a way out to, you know, not attack because nobody really wants that, including, I think, himself also thinking that doesn't really help because mm -hmm. what, what would be the result of this, you know? Mm -hmm. Okay, they would bomb a few airports, uh, but <laughs> it wouldn't turn over... Uh, the situation in that uh, civil war because first of all you have too many parties fighting there already i mean it's not about the uh, syrian rebel army against the government 
used to be the case somehow in the last two years some at some time. Now you have many different groups and with a strong uh, ethnic and religious background. You know, it's all about Sunnites, uh, Shiites, uh, I don't know what, but, what but, other groups are there. But Tim, it does break down at this point to pro-government groups and anti-government groups. I mean, that... In yes. that sense, there are two sides to this. <laughs> yes, but but uh, let's say in theory the government would be, you know, somebody would win here and it's not the government. Mm. It would be totally unclear what the path would be and if the situation would be better uh, for everybody, including the West. So mm -hmm. I think just the US just didn't want to attack, but they sort of had to, yeah had to do it if nobody was coming up with a good idea. And Russia just doesn't want it because they uh, have an interest in the overall infrastructure and, you know, no. just don't want Assad to be out of power. No. And, of course, Assad has no interest in this uh, game too. <laughs> so there was some way out and then they decided like, ah, yeah, we just hand over the, the weapons. Problem is, now they're playing on time and saying like, Yeah, but without a proper resolution in the UN Security Council, we can't really do that. You know, it could take years for this uh, handover to uh, occur. You know, <laughs> nobody even knows how, ma how many weapons there are. You know, what if they are presenting like 10 locations where they have these weapons? Who knows if there's any more? Yeah. So that was my initial question. What do you think will happen next? Nothing. <laughs> like the famous hacker conference in, in, or once famous hacker conference, nothing will happen. Yes. Uh, I, I think that uh, they'll do this theater of handover. Wait, we're gathering up the chemical weapons. There'll be a ceremony. Uh, some Russian diplomats will, will look like scientists and they'll dress like scientists. That's important. Oh. And they'll <laughs> white and they'll, color. <laughs> yeah. And they'll point to some boxes. It's like, you know, I don't know if people out there ever watched the wire, But The Wire, the, the old show, used to always talk about dope on the table. If you want to show as the mayor of a city that your police force is succeeding, show a table with some drugs and some guns and have a press conference <laughs> and say, like, look at this. We found We it. Are making so there's going to be dope on the table for, for you know, the Russian authorities and the Syrian authorities. Yes. And there's going to be lots of pictures taken and some handshaking. <laughs> and meanwhile, people are still going to be dying. Like, that's... Oh yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, it's it's so much. I mean, that's why the wire, by the way, is so much relevant to life in general. Uh, but anyway, uh, that's the Syrian story for this week. Uh, stay tuned next week for the latest episode of this soap opera. Uh, I want to do one election story. Last week was an election bonanza. This week we'll <laughs> keep it light. Uh, but I find Rwanda a very interesting country. Uh, for many reasons, not just its its recent difficulties with genocide, uh, but the, they just had parliamentary elections, and the results came in yesterday. Uh, Paul Kagame's party, he's the president, of course, he's been the president for two decades, and, well, he won by a landslide, 76% of the vote. And this, you know, some people say, well, he's he's really got the country locked down and, and all the other opposition parties do whatever he wants. Uh, but he also has economic success. I mean, you know, 
and let me point to one tiny thing that shows you the power of uh, and, and the success of this government. People always talk about Rwanda and how you won't find any litter. Now, I haven't been there, but people talk about how you, you know, plastic bags, when you go to a supermarket or when you walk on the streets, you'll never see them. Uh, they, they have had this campaign of, of cleaning up the environment and, and at least cosmetically. Mm-hmm. And it's been extremely successful. And everybody knows about this in this region of Africa. It's, it's, it's famous for it. And then economically, they get the investment that so many countries dream of, hope for, and try to, to entice. Um, so he also benefits maybe it's not just because uh economics you know may also be a a party machine that every time there's an election you know uses its force but uh um, some amazing things like they claim 98.8 percent of registered voters voted that's like that's an extremely successful vote yeah that that can't be right uh you know um, yeah that's if they just registered just before casting their vote <laughs> oh that would do it wouldn't it yeah yeah <laughs> so just there's some, some weird people. numbers <laughs> yeah there are some weird numbers but so there he is and he you know he'll stay president if he wants to run again by the way because this was parliamentary but um if he would want to run again they would actually have to amend the constitution and as we've seen in different situations all over the world that does happen uh so that may be a possibility that would be for i think in like three or four years 2017 I wanted to mention one interesting thing about Rwanda because Rwanda has all these initiatives. I mentioned the environment, but look at this. Uh, so the, the article uh, in France 24 about the election talks about how you know they elected 53 directly elected members of parliament. They have a further 27 seats that are reserved for women, youth, and disabled representatives. And these will be indirectly elected, I guess, by the other parties. I'm not really sure. Oh, no. No, not by parties at all. Those candidates are not aligned to specific parties. So it's, it's not totally clear how they get uh, elected. I guess there might be a voting process. But I just find it impressive that they, they have 27 seats reserved for women, youth, and disabled representatives. But does think, this mean the other 53 are only reserved for non-disabled uh, <laughs> old men? <laughs> I think they're, they're not reserved, but that may happen Meant a lot. for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dominated by. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting to see um, the overall social and political progress that is done in Africa. Because we are so used to not anything happening at all in these countries for such a long time. It was all about war and famine and, and, and you know things not working and corruption. And of course you find this still on uh, many places, but Africa is a super huge continent. You know, you can, that's always interesting. I mean, by looking at the standard projection of the world map that we're used to, you know, you have this super huge Russia, this super huge US, but in fact, that's just a projection. Uh, if you take the actual land that is covered by uh, Russia, I think it doesn't even include China, know, but you can, you know, sort of put US and Russia and Europe in Africa completely. <laughs> And uh, we should look up these, um, this picture. Yeah. Uh, you've probably seen it before, um, which makes it clear that there's so much room and it's such a huge uh, continent. And if I think in the near future, uh, at least five countries will sort of make it into some kind of democratic and economic stability, this will 
be very interesting to see because I expect the rest of Africa to follow suit more or less, you know, mm. not not immediately and not all of them, but that might be the the decade of Africa and it's sort of forming already in telecommunications. It's forming in, in, in new approaches. And then we have probably new... Well, probably not role models, but at least oh, yeah. new approaches to uh, how you could design um, a, a community and a, and a society in a different way that we're yeah. not yet used to. Yeah, if you think about it, I mean, you hear it in conversations. People, not these, this is one example I could think of Scandinavia. You know, people always say, like, oh, we should have a Scandinavian style this or government or or healthcare. And, you know, it is a bit of an example. Uh, not that every country that, that talks about how good it is can, can do the same thing, but there, there is an aspiration. I think you're right. Like in the context of East Africa, let's say, or Central Africa to some extent, um, if there's an example that's going to get the attention of neighbors because of its economic success, because of its maybe stability, uh, Rwanda could be the one. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's certainly the, the leader. So there goes a parliamentary election, and, and let's see how Paul Kagame and his still uh, ruling party uh, does in the next couple of years. Um, here's a big one. Uh, this is an article. I, I, you know, I usually do a news item that maybe something has just developed within the last week. This is a sort of larger story. It's the story of um, U.S. military aid in Colombia, and really it's a story of human rights in, in Colombia. Um, in These Times uh, is a, a newspaper in the United States, which I'll talk about later in the show because it'll be our, our news source this week, um, had a feature on the results and the side effects of U.S. military aid in Colombia. And this is because um, many people may have already heard this. We've touched on it occasionally. You have the war on drugs, of course. The U.S. fights a war on drugs, which... Uh, involves sending a lot of money for military, for police. And uh, Colombia is probably the number one recipient of this aid. I mean, this year they're supposed to get uh, $280 million, but they've already sent, since, 200, since 2009, they've sent two, more than $2 billion in military and police aid. Um, it, it's a huge amount of money, and that's all going, for the most part, to the military. In, mm -hmm. in Colombia. And of course, the military is fighting this battle with the FARC, and then there are paramilitaries. And you, you have these statistics, which, which this article highlights. I mean, 4.7 million people who have been internally moved, displaced from their homes because of this war for the last, you know, 50, 50 years, in fact. Um, and, and this has had, you know, a terrible effect on, on quality of life and, well, the amount of people that have died, 220,000 people have died and 82% of those are civilians. So it's a lot of this type of information that you've probably heard of and you kind of know, but when was the last time you saw it really laid out? And this is what the background of right now, there are these peace talks and we've talked about it here on, on news of the world. Uh, they're going on in Havana the the author of this article says, you know, these peace talks are making little progress. They're just going on. Nothing is coming as a result. And in the meantime, actually, there's a lot of still uh, terrible things going on in Colombia on both sides. Uh, so the article gets into the crimes committed by the FARC even now. 
the types of things that they're involved with, with child soldiers, with uh, you know terrorist attacks, with kidnapping. But it also gets into what the government has done, uh, the military does um, with um, war crimes, uh, mass ex- executions. And uh, again, uh, an item we've covered here on News of the World, you've also had this big protest of farmers in Colombia. Uh, and, and this was in August where it really started to get media attention. And this was the first time I've read more details about not only what the farmers are worried about, uh, but also how the government is responding. So the, the farmers are upset about the the difficulty to earn a living, uh, to pr- compete with a lot of the, the farm products, agricultural products that are coming in from, for example, the U.S., because there is this U.S.-Columbia free trade agreement. These agreements, you know, they've been going on since the 90s, and they have all these side effects. And one of them is really, really cheap corn, for example, from mm-hmm. the U.S. Mm-hmm. So if you're a corn producer in Colombia, you, you, you can't compete. You can't price your corn that low. I mean, you'll starve. And you'll probably starve anyway because you, you can't sell it. So uh, they've been out protesting, urging the government to do something about this, you know, that this can't be, this, this, we can't let this happen. The Colombian president has actually mobilized 50,000 troops uh, to go to places like Bogota and other cities to sort of stand and react to the protests because, you know, they're considered dangerous or disruptive. And, you know, this is with the background of this drug war. They, they spend tons on the military. They get lots of money on military. The military does horrible things to the country. So they're not the only ones. And you have the farmers rising up because of the cost of, of doing what the, trying to do what they do. And then you have the, the, the government using the very military that's, that's funded by the drug war to respond and crack down on them. So it's a, it's a long article, as you can tell. And it documents a lot of the big mass killings, crimes that have been committed on all sides and the role of the u.s that uh you know where which is still funding this this drug war even though we live in an era now where i mean we know it from the drug policy in general it's not working it's not actually doing what it was supposed to do uh decreasing the amount of drugs and and improving life for both colombians and americans is for the most part not true at all and so yeah i i I highly recommend the article and, and that's why i included it this week yeah, very interesting. So from that article, you can't really uh, draw any conclusions on how these peace talks will, you know, develop. No, and the, the author, he's not really getting into uh, the the peace talks very much. But at the same time, by not getting into them and focusing on what's been going on the last few months, even in terms of killing and, and uh, war activities, what they seem to be saying is no matter what happens in those talks, which apparently aren't going well, this policy is the bigger problem. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in a way, it's it's trying to uh, make some noise about changing the policy, which isn't impossible, but it's such a tradition, I think, among American government. Not even American people, because I don't think American people know anymore. They've lost track of this. They know there's some drug war thing, and some people hate it, some people don't like it, some people don't pay attention. But I think that, that in Washington, there's a tradition of you keep sending this money to Colombia. That's what you do. Democrat, Republican, I don't know. Just keep with the program. Mm-hmm. I see. Uh, and, and that's something that this kind of evidence and, and listing it in this way, uh, the goal is to you know, change that. Um, okay, let's move um, yeah. to Thailand. 
Yeah, because this is in some ways attached and or, or connected to to what's going on um, in Thailand. I noticed this through Global Voices, so not not a uh, a mainstream news story, but one that's been covered at length uh, through YouTube videos and uh, even photo sets on Flickr. Uh, rubber farmers in Thailand have been out in protest since August, actually. I did not notice this in August. I noticed it only this past week. 10,000 rubber farmers, and this is in southern Thailand, uh, they've launched a series of protests since August, and they're demanding uh, help because rubber prices, I didn't know this, are plummeting uh, around the world, mm-hmm. and uh, it's becoming impossible to to survive. And so they've been putting up road and railway blockades, uh, trying to disrupt even tourism, of course, which is a very big deal for Thailand. Now, Thailand is the world's largest producer and exporter of natural rubber. And what the farmers want, and this is one of those things that is, I think, very Thai in some ways, they want the government to give them support, uh, subsidies. They want policies that are going to help them through. If this is just a phase with the international market, then help them for now. But they want government help. And what they point to, which is interesting, is that apparently Thai rice farmers get help. Of course, you know, rice is the the crop uh, for Thailand. It's the national food. And apparently they say rice farmers get all kinds of government help. They want it too. At the same time, I've read that rubber farmers in the good days, which is not right now, usually make more than rice farmers. But despite that fact, they want the same kind of treatment. And they're willing to go so far as to to take to the streets and, and put up all these roadblocks. So um, this protest is not finished. You know, it's going to be ongoing. Some people say because this is southern Thailand, and you may have heard over the years about different kinds of conflicts in southern Thailand, people going against the government. There's a rebel movement uh, in some parts of the south. And some people say these people are just being used by the opposition. Uh, I don't know uh, how that works. I don't know if that's necessarily true. But I recognize this sort of jealousy or this saying, well, if you treat rice farmers a certain way, then you should treat rubber farmers a certain way. I'm also curious as to why, and I don't have an answer right now, why the rubber market around the world has has collapsed the way it has. Um, like, what is going on that that let that happen? Someone must be producing extremely cheap rubber. Uh, and, and maybe it's not even natural rubber. Maybe it's uh, an alternative to this that's, that's pricing them out. Um, probably a little more research, and I would, have, I would have that answer. But I don't have time for that right now. Hmm. Yeah. It's a general problem with local farmers, you know, making a living and then the global conditions change and they're totally incapable of uh, adapting to it. And then it's all a question on does a government go into protectionist mode and, you know, uh, comes up with these subsidies, which in the long run, you know, you, you, you usually never get rid of. <laughs> Once you've started them, you know. Uh, everybody uh, takes it for granted and and sort of uh, comes up with studies that this is totally necessary and otherwise you know uh, nothing would uh, help. But if you don't do it, you probably get rid of the basis of your e- economy, and and that could be a big problem in the long run. So it's not easy. Yeah, th- there's got to be some kind of strategy in these countries for what seem to be extreme fluctuations of value when it comes to. Well, be it rice or be it rubber, there's got to be some way to to protect against that because 
I, I, I'm not surprised, you know, how, how, of course people are angry. I mean, if prices change dramatically from year to year, so dramatically that you, you can't afford to live and you could have, and you did last year, like that, that's something that's, there's got to be something you can do about that. Mm. Uh, so let's oh, move to Europe. Yeah, uh, this one caught my attention now. So people will remember I, last week I was in Portugal. I've been in Portugal for the last two weeks and I was in hospitals uh, because my, my grandfather was uh, dying. And here I found the story of Greece and the cuts that they're putting into effect for the healthcare system. So, you know, Greece has this bailout package uh, under the EU and the IMF and it requires has a you know whole list of requirements that you have to do in order to get the money and keep salaries paid and so forth. Well, one of those targets is to cut civil servant jobs. And this is the same thing is said in a lot of countries these days that there are too many civil servants, they're overpaid, the, it's it's part of part of the problem for the national budget. And in Greece they're supposed to get rid of thousands of state jobs and when you have state hospitals, hospital workers are state employees. So as in Greece, as in Portugal, and I'm sure these two are not alone, s hospital workers are being fired. And what's amazing is these are countries where hospitals are actually not in that great condition. It's not that there's too many hospital workers, mm -hmm. uh, but since they're state employees, they're seen and they're targeted, when, especially when it comes to on paper, as just state jobs that have to go. So Greece is doing these mass firings and these uh, big moves to make like central hospitals, you know, away from regional hospitals, away from local hospitals, put them in giant hospitals in places like Athens. And if you're sick out in the countryside, well, then drive for 45 minutes to the central giant massive hospital where we've put all the nurses and doctors. And this is the strategy that they're doing. And in this article uh, that I found this week, they talk both about, the effect that this is having on healthcare and about how much money the country is cutting from health. And it's impressive. I mean, just some little statistics. Public health spending dropped by 25% between 2009 and 2012. 25% less That's on public a lot. health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I mean, before that, over 10 years, it, it only had increased about 6%. I mean, that, that's the 90s, pretty much. Mm -hmm. And that's, well, it's the 2000s, really. Still, um, it, it's pretty scary. Uh, Greece is now spending, let me see if I have it here, uh, under 9.3% of its GDP on, on health care. Um, yeah, 9.1% of its GDP. So... What's this the average for other countries? I have no no idea. I don't know either. Hold on. Average spent on GDP healthcare. Uh, I don't know what it is, but it's... Uh, oh, I'll have an index, but then I'll have to look through the index. Mm. Mm. Okay, we'll leave that open. Yeah, because then I start to get the per-person costs. That's Yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. Um, but this is one of those issues, and it was really big in Portugal right now in the media and also as between people that are going to the hospital. Uh, and that's about, like, what is reasonable to ask? Okay, you know, we're over budget. We're spending too much, and we need these bailout packages. Bailout packages come with requirements for, for saving money. And, you know, when is it too much? When, and And... If you don't have the money, then do you go further? How, what is sacred? What is not allowed to be cut? But 
in this case, it's it's in Greece, as in Portugal, as in I'm sure other countries that are going to need bailouts soon. Uh, it's considered okay to do this, and and I, that's what really shocks me to see it like the way I did in Portugal these past few weeks. I just don't understand, and 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 maybe the problem is that a lot of this is done on paper, and you look at you know how many people are civil service employees. Okay, cut this many, boom, and you don't ask what are their jobs, how you know how does this affect health quality of life um the country i i mean i've i have the impression that greece is far from really being an active state sort of looking at the problems and trying to figure out a solution for the future it's much more short-term decisions based on this a real problem and the pressure they get from the outside so they are totally incapable of finding well-balanced solutions probably making some things worse hmm. in the long run just my impression i th yeah i mean that is i think part of the the problem i i found the graph here it's from the oecd uh and it's got let's see if i look at just public what the public um money is used on healthcare so that's dark blue hold on uh the one of the just for example norway Norway spends in in US dollars a little between well $5,300 per person um in terms of uh healthcare okay per year is that right i can't be right <laughs> 5000 per person well on the scale Norway comes out on top in terms of how much it's it spends on on people in public health um and just to give you the op Germany is towards the top as well along with countries like luxembourg uh france at the bottom just for an example 913 you've got turkey mexico 916 uh portugal and greece are at 2700 2900 uh and this is total health expenditure per capita uh for public so you know greece is not at the bottom yet but they're being pushed that way hmm. uh And yeah, the OEC the OECD average is three thousand two. Yeah, but it doesn't really say if it's just effective or greedy or poor. That's you true. Know? That's true. Yeah, very difficult to come up with all these uh, numbers here. Maybe we should uh, just take a look, closer look at Norway, where things are totally different. Yeah, this is pretty cool. So I was. Um, traveling and i was on planes and i had actual paper magazines in my hand Ooh. and yeah exactly i was impressed just to touch them and Did they uh, make a sound when you touch them yeah crackling noises wow yeah that's uh, so 20th century man so i'm on the plane reading mm -hmm. and uh i saw this article in the economist i know i don't read the economist that often but i, I did this time and it, it i saw a connection to our Uh, item last week about the Norwegian elections. You'll remember they've got the uh, the new prime minister and basically the center right now coming to to power. And one of the small points, small but significant, about the new government was going to be they wanted to do something with the sovereign wealth fund. Well, all right. This week in the Economist, there's an article about what is this Norway sovereign wealth fund, and it's really interesting. I well, I think. It's, uh, first of all, this thing is called the Government Pension Fund Global. That's the officially name, uh, no, known name. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also known as the Oil Fund because that's where a lot of the money has come from. Yes. 
And it's actually the world's biggest sovereign wealth fund. It's worth about $760 billion, and it's supposed to grow to $1.1 trillion by 2020. That's huge. I didn't know this. This fund owns about 2.5% of every European listed company, especially the big ones, Shell, HSBC, Apple. Uh, so Which is they, not particularly a European country. <laughs> well, the, the big ones in Europe, I should say. Um, and, and this is very interesting because so they're extremely successful in terms of saving money. And the whole objective of such a fund, at least officially, is to take all this wealth that Norway is making and make sure that it lasts, make sure that later it's available. Yes. But that, that whole idea is now being debated. And it's actually the right wing, uh, center right, 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 that are saying, we should use this. We should use this money more, more actively, because it's legendary. Although they own this like 2.5%, they're not, they're not known for doing anything specific. They're not, they don't take very active roles. They don't try and influence... They don't have big plans. They're very passive in a way. The mm-hmm. only thing that they are very strict about, which is, again, very interesting, is they don't do uh, unethical. Or I should say what they're strict about is it has to be ethical. No firearms, no tobacco, all the controversial industries, they don't invest this money in. So they have a board that really looks at this. And they're legendary. I remember from an old job I had in sustainable investment, uh, I used to do these conferences, and people talked about Norway and the Sovereign Wealth Fund all the time. Um, well, so the right wing parties de- are saying you, you, let's you use can this. debate you can debate if investing in shell is really about sustainable you know business i mean right. business Keep- must, might be sustainable, but if that what they do is sustainable or no not sustainable i don't know if I said that by accident they don't do ethic so you can debate royal Dutch shell's ethics uh but unfortunately yeah. Norway or not surprisingly since nor so much of Norway's money comes from oil yeah i'm i I can see that they they're not very strict with oil companies so on the, the other the, hand that might be the exception to the ethics rules like yeah if it's not about oil <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> yeah that's true and that's partially because that's where the, the money has come from that is a very good point mm-hmm um, so, but it's interesting now that, so you have the, the center right party, you have this far right progress party and they're saying, let's touch the money, uh, which is not what the right wing and the rest of the world is legendary for, you know, spend more. Uh, but they want the fund to be more active. They want to use the money for roads, for rebuilding what they say is Norway's infrastructure, which th- they claim is, is old and crumbling, which I, uh, I've heard opposite, but all right, I don't live there. <laughs> it's like... They are totally out of proportion. They found a crack on one of the streets and yeah. the, the road. <laughs> Quick, get the fun. Something like this. Yeah, may- maybe they just want to uh, increase internet access in, 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 in rural areas from one gigabit to 10 gigabit or something like this. Yeah. yeah. And even some NGOs actually want the fund to be more active in development and improving other countries. So it's not just the right wing. There are people who want Norway to be bigger when it comes to, quote-unquote, helping the world, helping the world move forward. So the weird thing is all signs or many signs point to the idea that huge success to build this wealth fund, they'll ruin it somehow. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I see written here. Uh, just give them a little bit of time. These parties will ruin it. Anyway, I highly recommend reading it because you can probably get a lot more information. It's a, it's a very detailed and a very unique example in the world, the uh, Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. All right. Now that I 
board things up with lots of details and background. I wanted to do this week's news source, and that is going to be In These Times. Uh, I know In These Times from the olden days. I used to, I worked at the Village Voice in New York, and I liked all these sort of what they considered progressive left, yeah, you could say left uh, newspapers and magazines. And In These Times is part of what's considered the left press. But I also think, never mind political parties, I think that it's a very detailed investigative reporting type newspaper, and there aren't that many out there. Uh, It's an American, of course, uh, publication, and it's considered, yes, progressive or left. Um, You get news, you get opinion, and it's published by the Institute for Public Affairs in Chicago. And uh, let's see, it's uh, been around since 1976. What else can I tell you? It's big on environmental issues, uh, grassroots democracy, minorities, um, feminism, these types of issues. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's still a very good magazine. What I also know of it, I think I called it a newspaper before, but it's more of an mag- online magazine. What I also know is that there are bloggers that I grew up reading. I, when I say I grew up, I mean when I was about 20 years old and blogs were alive. Um, and a lot of bloggers that I knew that were very good writers and did journalism in their blog were later hired uh, or, or got work within these times. So what I always admired about them was back in the day of the, the dawn of blogs, they were looking around and picking up a lot of good talent that were just independent voices on the internet. And some of those people are now staff. Uh, so I find that interesting as well, their, their practice of They are hiring. listing four blogs within in these times. So it's a, it's a very small collection. Yeah. It's not like a huge blogging server, like, yeah, yeah, every, you can blog and you know, no. sort of contributing to the content. So it's just an... A carefully chosen extension to what they are reporting on. Yes. Can I say that? Yeah. Because it also and has strong focus here on work, uh, working, and uh, working on social movements and stuff. Yeah. And you, you have actual journalists that don't publish a blog anymore that started as bloggers and were found that way and then hired as, as regular contributors. Yeah. And I also have one blog that is coming up with stuff that didn't make it into the print Ah, yeah, I always like that idea. Mm-hmm. So the we'll put a, overflow stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, underreported. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll put a link to in these times, and and you know some people will write it off and say, well, it's politically slanted, and that's all fine and true. But I, I find the type of, of investigation, and even in this Columbia article this week, you'll find so much information left, right, center. Uh, it's just a lot of facts put together, assembled in in such a a clear way that I think it's very useful. Okay. Exactly. That's that, it. That, that is brings us to the end of the show. Yes. Very detailed, I think. A lot of background in, in this week's show. It's good. I like it. Yeah. All right. Good. Uh, I like it. Let's look ahead. Uh, you next week? Next week you're around? Yes. German, uh, Germany elections are coming up. Ooh, Federal when, when, elections on Sunday. Oh. Yes. All Nobody right. knows uh, what the outcome is going to be, uh, except for nobody really expects a new chancellor to come up. Right. So I uh, expect Angela Merkel to still be in power. Uh, the only question is, are they going to continue the coalition they now have? Or is the smaller party, the FDP party, going to be kicked out uh, of the... Uh, the parliament, they yeah. have just lost 
in a regional uh, election in Bavaria, where they were part of the government too. And they have lost like, I don't know, 60% of their votes. And they're not only no longer in the government, they're actually no longer in the in that parliament. So um, nobody knows if this is a trend or this is just Bavaria, because Bavaria is always uh, different. They have somehow returned to their... Um, traditional way of you know giving away their power which means like the CSU like the, the Christian uh, Democrats of Bavaria which are forming a separate entity within the federal Christian Democrat movement they are now again with the uh, absolute majority uh, in power as they used to be for so many years so somehow it's not really surprising that they're sort of turning back to their traditional way of you know, voting. Uh, so it doesn't really have to be a trend, but at least it's totally open now how the uh, outcome for the actual government is going to be. So that would mean a grand coalition, how we call it in Germany, which means mm -hmm. Social Democrats and Christian Democrats are biggest two biggest parties. And we had that before, yeah. you know, four years ago. And it's not that much better. <laughs> uh, uh, because it's uh, a general standstill uh, basically means you know there's no real opposition anymore and yeah true so all right that'll be sunday not fun, much fun, uh, fun. excitement uh, election parties yeah well <laughs> as i uh, probably mentioned last week we're going to do a live podcast show for oh. for this uh, event we'll see what's coming out of this and uh yeah I think that will be one of our topics next week then. Okay. I'm going to go do my own investigation in Paris uh, this weekend. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll, I'll report what I see there uh, later in the week. <laughs> okay. so I, I'm sure I'll just see baguettes and, and other, <laughs> other pastries. Good. Thanks yeah. uh, to everybody for yeah. listening to this show. And yeah, see and you we'll, next week. Exactly. Goodbye. Bye.